Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I've been a small-town police officer in the quiet corners of Kentucky for as long as I can remember, but nothing could have prepared me for what I encountered that fateful night. It was a night that would forever haunt my dreams and make me question the very fabric of reality. The call came in just after midnight, a chilling whisper in the dark that sent shivers down my spine. Someone unknown had dialed 911 their voice trembling as they reported something weird happening at an abandoned underground facility on the outskirts of town. It was an unusual call for our quiet little community, but we were obligated to investigate. I arrived at the scene, the headlights of my squad car slicing through the inky blackness of the night. The facility loomed before me, a foreboding structure that had long been forgotten by the world above. I could feel a palpable sense of unease as I approached, like the very earth beneath my feet was trying to repel me from its depths. The entrance was an old rusted door that groaned in protest as I pushed it open. The air inside was heavy with the scent of dampness and decay, and a dim flickering light barely pierced the darkness ahead. I cautiously descended the stairs, my hand resting uneasily on my holstered weapon. As I delved deeper into the facility, I began to uncover the disturbing truth. The rooms were filled with eerie equipment, 
strange contraptions, and a grotesque array of medical tools. My heart sank as I realized the nature of the experiments that had taken place here. Human subjects, their faces contorted in agony, lay scattered across the floor like the victims of some twisted, macabre ritual. The dread that had been building within me began to escalate, as if the very walls of the facility were closing in. I felt an oppressive presence, a malevolence that seemed to seep from the very walls themselves. I knew I was not alone. On one occasion, I stumbled upon an encounter that would forever be etched in my mind. In the dim light, I saw a large dark figure walking upright in my direction. It was black, a bit shorter than I, with no visible neck that I could see. Its head was oddly shaped, sniffing the air with its nose pointing up. I could not see any visible eyes. I was rooted to the spot in fear, unable to physically move a muscle. The creature sensed my presence, and in a sudden blur of motion, it lunged at me with unnatural speed. We tumbled to the ground, and in a panic, I unholstered my weapon and fired. The gunshot echoed through the underground chambers, but I missed my mark, the bullet harmlessly embedding itself in the wall. Fear coursing through my veins, I managed to scramble to my feet and flee the scene, my heart pounding like a drum. I raced up the stairs through the echoing corridors and out into the cool night air. Once outside, I called for backup, my voice trembling as I recounted the horrors I had witnessed. My fellow officers arrived swiftly, their flashing lights illuminating the facility's entrance. But as we cautiously re-entered the facility, the creature was nowhere to be seen. It had vanished, leaving only a trail of dread in its wake. We combed every inch of that facility, but there was no sign of the mysterious creature. The experiments... The inhuman suffering, the malevolent presence, it was all very real, but the entity that had haunted me remained elusive. As I stood there breathing heavily, I knew that the nightmares of that night would never truly leave me. It's one of those nights that I can never forget. I was dispatched to a call about an erratic driver, but it sounded like the call was taken by mistake. There wasn't any description other than suspect operating vehicle erratically, so I figured it must have been for somebody else. When I got up to the area, though, there he was, the suspect himself, driving down the road as if nothing had happened. I pulled out after him, trying to get his attention with my sirens and lights, but he didn't budge, not at all until almost half a mile later when he finally moved over into the right lane, stopped on the shoulder facing me head, on. He sat there in his car, completely still. I got out of my car with my flashlight and shone it on him. His expression was blank, like he didn't even see me there in front of his car. I didn't want to make any sudden movements in case this guy was dangerous, but at the same time, I felt like he wasn't going to do anything because he stopped himself. So I took a few slow steps toward him while my other hand hitched over to where my firearm is kept, just behind the small of my back, inside a cross-draw holster. He still made no movement whatsoever, so I took another step forward and then thought this might be the only tense I get. I jumped into his vehicle through the open window, put one hand on his shoulder and another on his head. 
I tried to pull him off the window, but it's like he was stuck, like he was glued there. He didn't even try to resist or anything. Then I saw it. This massive gash on the side of his chest, like something straight out of a horror movie. It was deep, too, right down to the very bone. Lacerated flesh flapping in the wind against the jagged edges of exposed ribs, as if somebody had just hacked into him with an axe. It wasn't bleeding, though. In fact, the blood seemed coagulated. It made me think, is he not human at all? There were no other injuries anywhere else on his body, either. So it didn't appear to be from some kind of accident. I left the guy sitting there because he was completely unresponsive, but I couldn't find any signs of blood. There were definitely marks on his body, though. They all pointed to the same thing. He had clearly been in some sort of hostile situation. I just called this in as a hit and run, left the car where it was and tried to follow it. I called in an ambulance to get him medical attention. When the ambulance showed up, they too were shocked by his state and surprised by the fact that he was not dead. Although in checking his vitals, his temperature was 70 degrees and his blood flow seemed to not be really going much at all, meaning he had very low blood pressure and his heartbeat was abnormally low, but he was still clearly alive enough to operate a vehicle. Talk about disturbing. It still really bothers me when thinking back. I mean, how often does this sort of thing happen? And seeing something like that, it really just sticks with you. It's very haunting. It was on a hot summer night that I was out in the dark woods with my neighbor, whom I'm pretty close with. He was like extended family, honestly. The fact that I didn't even know we were going until that night when I was sitting at home in front of my laptop playing video games. My neighbor came over to see me, and he asked me if I wanted to go camping with him and his family. It had been a while since we last did anything together, so of course, I said yes. It would have just given us an excuse not to go to school for a couple of days. This was in September, so school had just started back up, and the coldness of fall had not yet come, so it was perfect. The next day, his family and I gathered our camping gear. We're driving down a dark road with tall trees on the other side of it. It was getting dark quickly, so we had to turn the lights on. Unfortunately, which means we would have had to set up in the dark. So we're driving for about an hour, but it felt like it took forever. My friend's dad turned left at an unmarked intersection where there wasn't even a sign saying that this was the right turn off the road. The road got bumpy and rocky as he drove over this very raw, unpaved road. That's when we came across a large clearing because all I could see around was trees and darkness. Where we stopped at this makeshift campground, I say that because there was no clear indicated spot to set up a tent, a spigot, a bathroom, or anything, this was truly camping just down the middle of nowhere. Perfect. Now I need to say that it was pitch blackout and it had gotten really cold now that the sun had set, but we were also higher up in elevation, so we got everything set up quickly and decided we would huddle up in the tent together that my friend's father had set up for us. But I just had this feeling lingering within me that we weren't alone. Now my brain was playing tricks on me, so I decided to step out and get some fresh air. 
It was eerily quiet until I heard this screaming noise. My heart began pounding fast as if it knew what was coming. Then we heard a wrestling noise in the bushes, more screaming from the woods. I was so scared that my friend told me to come back into the tent. Now, not only could we all hear the noises, but then as I got back in the tent and we shined our light, we could see something moving outside the tent. This shape, my friend's dad got a flashlight shining at it. That's when this thing began screaming and thrashing. Now we're all yelling, freaking out because we can see the shape of this thing more. It looked like an animal, but all we could see was this large shape, and it was terrifying. Looking from the silhouette, it looked like an upright, deformed reindeer or something, and it had long claws. It was where we being pranked. I wasn't even sure. It screamed again in our direction, and we just prayed for it to leave. It walked around our tent, and we all kept our flashlights shining at it through the tent material, only revealing its silhouette. But one thing I noticed is it never came closer to the tent. It's like it was pissed that we set up camp here in its area. I get it. This probably sounds like some sort of amateur creepy pasta, but tell it to my family, my friend's family, and me, who have to deal with the memory of this thing. We stopped hearing it, almost literally after we all pretty much urinated all over our sleeping bags out of terror. Surprisingly, none of us had any weapons on us. Somehow, we all forgot. We got lucky that night, but who knows what would have happened if it were to come back and possibly check out our tent. Now, of course, my friend's dad regrets that he didn't bring any weapons. He forgot. He normally always carries a pistol. I went home the next day, and we didn't get any sleep that night. What was designed to be a civil day trip turned into a quick overnight terror. I've not been able to go camping since. I don't think I ever will, you know. And I'm also not sure what this thing was or where it came out of. I haven't really sat down to try and research either. I don't really care. I just want to get rid of this memory. I crouched in the darkness, the cool desert sand beneath me as I adjusted the straps on my gear. Our mission was clear. Extract a fellow Navy SEAL who had been held captive by terrorists in Iraq. It was a dangerous assignment, but we were trained for this. I glanced at my team, five highly skilled individuals ready to face any challenge that lay ahead. As the team leader, I felt the weight of responsibility on my shoulders. I double-checked our coordinates and briefed the team on the plane. We would parachute into the Iraqi desert, relying on our compass and the given coordinates to locate the secret house where our comrade was held. The night was pitch black as we jumped from the aircraft, each of us descending gracefully to the desert floor. Once on the ground, we regrouped and began our trek towards the target location. The silence of the desert was interrupted only by the occasional gust of wind. Suddenly in the distance, a strange glow caught our attention. We paused, our senses heightened, and watched as the glow transformed into the figure of a maiden. Her luminous face seemed otherworldly, an ethereal presence in the barren desert. Confusion and disbelief washed over us as we tried to comprehend what we were witnessing. Before we could react... The mysterious figure launched herself at us with incredible speed and force. 
instinct kicked in, and we swiftly raised our rifles, unleashing a barrage of bullets towards her. But our weapons seemed useless as the bullets passed through her without causing any harm. Fear consumed us, and we turned and ran, our hearts pounding in our chests. We sprinted through the desert, desperate to put distance between us and this inexplicable threat. After what felt like an eternity, we dared to glance back, only to find that the maiden had vanished into thin air. Relief washed over us, but unease lingered in the back of our minds. We took a moment to catch our breath and collect our thoughts. We made a silent pact to never speak of what we had witnessed in that desert. It was beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. Determined to complete our mission, we continued our journey towards the secret house. We reached our destination and skillfully infiltrated the terrorist stronghold, eliminating any resistance along the way. Finally, we found our fellow Navy SEAL battered but alive. With a mixture of relief and pride, we freed him from his captors. As we extracted our comrade and made our way back to safety, we remained silent about the supernatural encounter in the desert. It was an unspoken agreement that this was something best left unexplored and unexplained. We had seen things that defied logic and reason, but it did not deter us from our duty. The encounter only lasted a few seconds, but it was one of those with the FMI sharing airspace with moments. He was in the United States Navy flying P-3 subhunters back in the 80s and was on one of his many flights jumping from one island to another way out in the Pacific. At one point, he was on another one of his long hauls somewhere over the ocean, hundreds of miles away from anything. At around one or so, his co-pilot spotted some kind of aircraft coming from the right side, well ahead of them, at a much lower altitude. It didn't have any position lights on or anti-collision lights, just a few night formation light strips. They could only see a bit of moonlight reflecting off it, but could tell it was something somewhat small-ish, as in not a bomber, sleek, and definitely not a B-2. Going by how it looks after the fact, this debuted in 97 or F-117 or any other plane he recognized. But it looked like it would have been a stealth fighter or a tack plane for sure. My dad flashed his landing lights to basically say, Hi, we're flying here. Dafuk you doing? At this point, the other plane turned off its green nighttime navigation lights and visibly picked up its pace. They got one last look at its moonlit features before it went under their nose. There was no trace of it after that. They flew the rest of the trip, assuming they were being monitored very closely. Nothing ended up happening, and they didn't tell anyone, or so he tells me. If anything else did happen, he probably isn't allowed to say. He was 100% positive it was military, but he has no idea what. Whatever it was, he clearly wasn't meant to see it and he was flying right above it. Hundreds of miles away from civilization and thousands away from the mainland. Edit. And I should also clarify, the B-2 obviously wasn't out at the time this happened, but it was when he told me this. Knowing how it looked after the fact, he was sure it wasn't a B-2.
I have an older guy friend who grew up in 1950s Alaska, where his dad was a bush pilot. So one day, they're out flying around just for a nice day, and suddenly the entire sky goes red. Complete red and clouds and no radio. At the time, he's old enough to understand what was going on, but still young that they just don't talk about it. His dad continues flying, for hours and not a word, but still thinking that the Cold War had just ended in thermonuclear holocaust. It wasn't out of the question. Alaska was a target close to Russia, and this was the height of the Cold War. The sky is still forever red. Finally, they start to run out of fuel. They have to land, but they don't know what's going on and zero ability to find out. His dad eases the plane down, finds the landing strip, and goes in for an emergency landing. They make it down perfectly. No hiccups, bumps, or anything. The airport is besides itself. Red sky and an unannounced emergency landing. And a crew guy comes up to help them out. What's going on? His dad asks. You have no idea just how lucky you are. A volcano just went off and you've been flying through the debris. Thank God no thermonuclear warfare. And they were stupidly lucky that the plane didn't stall out in the middle of nowhere Alaska with a volcano spewing nearby. When I was around 12.15, I was hunting with my dad and his hunting buddy. I was with my dad, and our friend was off a different trail. At the end of the day, we always met up where our trails met to walk back to the truck together. My dad was trying to teach our friend over the radios we used to use and couldn't get anything from him for about 20 minutes. As my dad and I are almost to the crossing, he comes on the radio and says he's on his way. We get there, and soon after, our friend shows up entirely out of breath and sweating like a pig. Mind you, we're in the north woods of Wisconsin during gun deer season, so he has very heavy clothing on, and his spot was about one miles down the trail. He goes on to tell us why he didn't answer and what happened. He was sitting in his ground blind and saw some movement in front of him. About 50 yards ahead, he saw a black bear cub, and only the cub. It sat down and started clawing at a tree trunk. He didn't move or make any noise because he knew Mama Bear was close and didn't want her to find him. He sat there watching the cub for over an hour, constantly trying to find Mama Bear, but could not get eyes on her. Finally, the cub lumbered off, and he decided it was safe to move out. By the time he answered us, it was already getting past dusk and starting to get dark. As he was walking, he heard a breath and felt hot, warm air on the back of his neck. The man is six feet four, so there's only two things that could have been tall enough to do that. A person or a standing bear. He panicked and sprinted for over a mile down the trail until he saw us. Luckily, he wasn't chased and made it back safely, just sweaty and beat. I was fishing in this little pond in the woods near my buddy's house. I heard a growling from across the water, but it was a really deep growl. I look up and I saw what can only be described as a Sasquatch. It was looking right at me from across the lake, which is about 100 feet away. Then it dropped on its belly and I want to say crawled away because that was the motion, but it was super fast. 
reminded me of a liquor from Resident Evil. I literally peed my pants and whimpered a little and was in shock for a moment. I never told a soul because who would believe me? This happened to my grandfather years ago. I guess he was out hunting and walking around in some woods maybe five miles from a main road near where my family settled north of Pittsburgh. He said that he started seeing these burnt-out candles and started picking them up for some reason. He followed them for like a 100 yards, and at the very end, there was a circle of black candles with a hole in the ground that looked to be a grave. He brought all the candles home, and my grandma yelled at him and made him throw them away. I was canoeing into my hunting area a few years back, came around a bend and saw some teenagers, maybe 20-year-olds walking down the train tracks. I waved hello and they proceeded to shoot a couple bullets in the river 40 yards in front and behind my boat. I've never been so angry in my whole life. I thought about going ashore downstream and sneaking up behind them to let a few bullets rip myself, but was afraid I might accidentally kill someone. This happened about two years ago on October 27th. I do a lot of hiking and I wanted to share with you all what is without a doubt one of the strangest things that I have experienced while hiking. While on the way back from the summit of Mount San Jacinto in California, a fairly popular trail, just as day was changing over to dusk about four miles and 2,000 vertical feet, a good two, three-hour hike. From the tram, we spotted a woman dressed in all black flapper attire, with the exception of a white scarf. This woman was in dress shoes and carrying a very nice beaded purse. She was walking very intently and at a hurried pace up the mountain. If you're familiar with the hike, it's at the top of the Wellman Divide. Nearly without words, I asked her if she was lost, to which she replied, I'm on the trail, aren't it? Her face looked gray and her lips were sort of blue. It was pretty cold outside. So as quickly as she had passed us, she was gone. My friend and myself looked at each other like now we have seen everything. After conversations with other hikers on the way down that had also seen her, I was kiddingly remarking that I was sure we had seen some sort of ghost looking for a lost love much like the mysterious lady in black story folklore. It was a truly bizarre experience. About an hour later, we were resting at Round Valley, and we saw her again. Keep in mind, this is literally in the middle of the forest at 9,000 feet elevation. A good two hours hike from anything, and the temps were around 35 degrees. The fact that it's so close to Halloween was not lost on me either. At any rate, I make no claims of the supernatural, but I'm not ruling it out. But I thought everyone might enjoy the story and the pictures of this truly strange encounter. I was a U.S. Army infantryman deployed to Afghanistan in 2006-2007 on the Pakistan border. 
I spent the majority of my nighttime deployment sitting outside of the FOB and mounted OPs because the CO thought if we did this, then the enemy wouldn't move at night, which was ridiculous because nothing happens at night over there. Seriously, they don't have street lights or electricity, so unless it's a full moon, you could trip into a wadi and break your neck, but anyway... So I spent 16 months over there taking turns sitting in the turret of the truck staring out into darkness, one eye seeing green from NODs and the other seeing nothing from the pitch black. I got very accustomed to viewing the world this way and if anything moved my eyes would pick it up instantly. Most of the time it was dogs or sheep or whatever so no big deal. So eight months in I lose one of my best friends to a landmine. One of the shittiest days of my life. Us being infantry, we got about two hours back at the FOB to try to comprehend what just happened before the CO sends us back out on patrol. Yay. So I'm sitting there in the turret, staring out into the darkness, as usual, thinking about the things that had just gone down. So obviously my mind isn't in the best place. Regardless, as I am staring out into the darkness, my non-night vision eye catches some movement off to my right, and I distinctly see the silhouette of a person. This person is moving around the outside of our perimeter, and I figuratively shit my pants since this hasn't happened at all during my time there. So naturally, I snap my head towards the movement to get a good picture of this person with my night vision to attempt to figure out what kind of crazy local villager is trying to get shot. Nothing is there, creepy as if, so I figure I'm just stressed from losing my friend and calm myself down and settle back in for the rest of guard duty. So I go back to looking straight ahead, and sure as shit, as soon as my eyes get back to 12 o'clock, I see movement again out of my peripheral. Figurative pants shitting happens again. Again, nothing is there through night vision. Still creepy as if. So at this point, I've about had it with this crazy country and being shot at and all that stuff. So I think to myself, okay, if it let's see what happens. So I turn my head back to 12 and watch out of my peripheral vision, and I distinctly remember the shape of a person walking around the outside of our perimeter. I can only see this dark figure when I'm not looking directly at it, but like I said at this point, I have no Fs left to give, so I sit and watch. As I sit and watch, I get the feeling that I know the figure who is patrolling our perimeter, and I am filled with the thought that is was my buddy who we had just lost earlier that day creepy instantly turned to comforting and i sat and watched the movement as long as i could i still to the day believe it was him so that's my story i used to hike a park near my house had been hanging out there for years one time I was walking the main trail when I noticed an opening in the brush leading to an area I had never been before. I love exploring, so I, uh, of course, decided to check it out. I was walking around for a while when I noticed a fairly large bone in the leaves. I wasn't too concerned as we lived in a very ethnic neighborhood, and I just assumed it was a cow or pig bone that someone had left from butchering but then I noticed the very human-looking pelvic bone laying close by. 
I stood there for a moment, sort of comparing my pelvis to the one on the ground before getting my knife out and getting the... Out of there. I called the police and led them to the bones, and they agreed that the remains were human, although they theorized it was probably a homeless person. Grew up playing in the woods behind our house, cross-country skiing and snowmobiling in the winter, ice skating on the pond. There were Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. No other houses up there. Occasionally a snowmobile would pass through, but not often. One summer, when I was a bit older, 15 maybe, went up there to ride my friend's dirt bike. There were some jumps up at the top of a cliff that we would take turns hitting. So I'm riding on the back up through the woods, and as we are passing the pond, there is a tent. I say woof and tell my friend to stop. I get off to investigate while he stays on the bike, but shuts it off. I was approaching the tent from the back, and the window was open, and I see the tent is full of clothes, food, liquor, beer. Of course I'm rattling off all of this to my friend when I happen to look up and see that there is someone sitting in the doorway of the tent with their back to me. They haven't moved and are just facing forward with their back to me, which is odd because clearly they heard me. At this point I turn around and start waving to my friend and mouthing, let's get out of here, as if I can somehow sneak away now. Finally the guy says very calmly, come around. I stopped in my tracks and looked back. He's still not facing me, and he says it again. Come around. At this point, my friend is starting the dirt bike, and he yells, what did you say? The response again is just, come around. I jump on the back of the bike, and we tear out of there up to the top of the cliff. There is a dirt access road up to the top, as there is a water tower up there, but it's a pretty rough road, so we assume this dude isn't gonna drive up there. We stop the bike and head over to the edge of the cliff to see if this guy is following us. Sure enough, he comes walking out of the woods from the same trail we came out on. He then proceeds to walk over towards some bushes and starts pulling branches down to reveal a gray truck that he had hidden. After uncovering the truck, he opens a box in the back and pulls out a rifle or a shotgun, then walks around and gets in the driver's side and starts hauling ass up the road. We take off running. I just run into the woods. My friend is screaming at me to get on the bike, but I tell him to just go and I keep running off into the woods. The truck comes to the top and stops by the water tower. I'm a good distance into the woods, but I can see the wheels of the truck and I hear the guy get out and start walking around. 
At this point, I'm scared shitless, but just trying not to make any noise. It seems like forever, but he finally gets in his truck and drives off. So I start running through the woods again, away from the way we came. I eventually come out to a big field. There's a house at the other end of the field, and I know the people who live there. I really don't want to go back through the woods to get home, so I figure maybe they can give me a ride. So I'm walking through the field, and I see a gray truck driving up the road at the other side of the field. There are round hay bales scattered around the field, so I duck behind one of those and peer out to see the truck is stopped just sitting there. Now what? So I make my way back towards the woods, keeping the hay bale between me and the truck. Eventually, he just drives off. I eventually make it to the house at the edge of the field, tell them what happened. Of course they will give me a ride, and they are calling the police. Police go up and check it out. The tent is there, but no one is there. They tell my parents that they don't know who it was, but that someone had skipped out at the local halfway house, and they hadn't seen him in about a week. He drives a gray truck. A week or so later, my friend comes by on his dirt bike and says there are a bunch of state cops up by the pond. So we ride over there to see what's up. The tent has been burned and a bunch of other stuff was still smoldering. Never found out if they ever found the guy or not. Hare hunting with my dad's family in Macedonia and some hills. We've found a pair of relatively fresh tracks. We're getting closer to them when we start hearing crashes from what sounded like two massive animals. The hare tracks led into a clearing and we reached a bush to peek out. No shit, there were two wolves having a go at a bear. One of them got swiped and its left side torn open. The other nipped the bear on the front right paw and left. The other wolf died soon and the bear left. Once we were sure it was gone, my uncle put the wolf down and its head still hangs in his house to this day. Also, we shot ourselves and no hares were hunted that day. When I was a teen, I used to go off, roading or mountain biking in the big forested parks in my suburban town. I had been gone for a few hours and was nearing the farthest end of the park. It was starting to get late, and I was deep in a muddied, secluded trails. I turned a sharp corner on part of the trail and saw a man, disheveled, maybe in his mid-forties or fifties, just standing there. I was surprised, and it stopped me in my tracks, about ten feet away from him. The trails were really narrow, and for me to turn around in the dense woods would leave me vulnerable to this guy if he decided to jump me or something. So I just stood there for a minute. We both looked at each other blankly. I said, hi, can I get past you, please? He didn't say anything for about another minute. Then he spoke, would you like a blowjob? Needless to say, I backed up really fast. Spun my bike around, called him a creepy. Mother F and rode off. Rabbit hunting at a fairly young age. We would take our beagle out to a farmer's land on Saturday mornings. Usually we would split up and just walk along, somewhat shadowing the dog on either side. Sometimes we would kick up a rabbit and call the dog over, or she would find one herself. So on days with not many rabbits, we would end up walking a couple of miles in before turning around. 
On one such day, I stumbled on a clearing with a pile of hair at the edge. At first, I thought it must be some animal fur, but then I realized it was spread all around the edge of the clearing and scattered around in the clearing as well, and also appeared to be human hair. Having no clue what I had found other than a shit ton of human hair a couple of miles into the woods, it was pretty creepy. Turned out I had stumbled on someone's harvested marijuana crop. The hair is used to keep animals away, so ended up not so creepy. Tanzania, dawn. We're on a platform that we built in a tree overlooking a carcass of a hippo, waiting when the king of jungle would come for its morning feast and our perfect shot. Suddenly our PH, our guide or professional hunter, silently points backwards, pale with a drop of sweat coming down his head while looking straight ahead. I look back and see a pair of eyes about five meters from me sitting on a branch, the red sky gently reflecting in its pupil. A leopard. Now leopards don't look intimidating comparatively to a lion or tiger per se, but what makes them so intense is the fact that they always finish. What? They? Stark. If they pick a target to pounce, the target is done for. What a leopard does is it jumps and hugs you with its claws, gently bites you in the neck, and then starts going apeshit with its feet right at your abdomen. We're about 1,000 miles from the closest hospital. I am also the youngest, the natural target. Fortunately, the story ends in a rather boring fashion. The leopard looked at us for a little bit and just said, F these guys and left. I used to hunt as a kid with my uncle and grandpa. The first time I killed a deer, I was alone, covering my side of the mountain while they ran the deer towards me. I shot a buck right in the side, but he was just a button buck. Only nubs for horns. I thought it was a doe, so that's why I shot it. I was so excited, right up until I walked up to the deer and it was gasping for air. I shot it in the lung. It was horrible. I felt awful, I cried. I didn't know what I'd just done. When my uncle found me like 45 minutes later, me sitting next to the deer I'd just killed. He was so excited, but he could tell I wasn't. We dragged it out of the woods, butchered it up that night, and made burgers. I couldn't finish mine, just didn't feel right. Never went hunting again. I was 15 or 16 at the time, so I was old enough to understand what was going on. Anytime anyone talks about hunting, I think back to that morning. I have no problem with people hunting, by all means, but I could never go again. I, 26 female, recently moved from the U.S. to the Balkans for a summer legal internship. After a few days of getting settled in my home for the summer, I decided to sign up for a gym nearby my apartment to serve as a self-care ritual and blow off steam after tough work days. Coming home from my first workout at the new gym, endorphins on 100, I noticed at a crosswalk that a man across from this busy street where I was stopped was staring at me. 
Now, this is not super uncommon, as I have found in my new home, and I have gotten used to dealing with occasional male stares, but they are usually very brief. This guy, however, was not looking away. I stared back for a full beat, so I know he knows I saw him, hoping that would be the end of it, and then turned my head away to continue down the street trying to avoid a creepy feeling that this wasn't the end of the interaction. From what I could tell, he didn't cross the lengthy street to meet me and probably just continued down from his side. Next thing I know, about two minutes later, I'm at a crosswalk, about to cross when I see him in my peripheral next to me at the stop. How he crossed the street and sped up to meet me so quickly is either a reflection of his cunning and athletic prowess or my general lack of observational skills. Standing next to me now, he is still staring at me, but I try not to tip him off to my noticing this. I take off as fast as I can when it's safe to cross the crosswalk, and naturally he matches my pace, a step or so behind me, still staring. Here I find myself in a familiar situation that I imagine many who have been followed also find themselves in. It is a critical juncture, if you will, where you ask. Is this someone following me, or a silly misunderstanding? I begin to ask myself, Am I overreacting? I have been followed many a time before, sadly, and so I have found that the best way to handle it is try to cut the baby, in half so to speak. I give them the benefit of the doubt to prove to me they aren't doing what I fear they're doing, while also trying to avoid any situation that would escalate the danger or cue him off to where I'm going. Trust but verify. So I decided to zip quickly toward another street, not my own. We were like one block from my apartment by the time I noticed him at the crosswalk with me, in the hopes that he would prove me wrong and not continue to follow me. This was a busy intersection, and there were about six different streets to follow from the crosswalk. He follows me down this random street, a choice where there is truly only residential buildings, no stores or restaurants. He could be headed toward to explain him choosing this street unless he lived nearby. I do something I have done before when followed to test the other person. I slow down and speed up my pace randomly to see if they match mine or like a normal person heading somewhere, try to walk by me as there was plenty of room to do so on this street. Within a block or so, I realized he was definitely following, definitely still staring. But not only that, with every few steps, I felt his presence keeping pace was also subtly getting closer and closer to me. The sun is setting at this point, and we are walking towards a part of town I don't know as well. The spirit moves, and I decide to make a break for it. I slow down as slow as I have gone throughout this whole pursuit checking my peripheral and jettison myself across the street until I get to the other side. I look back once I'm there to see that he is now looking across the street and moving toward it to follow me more, but this time I give him the meanest glare I can muster and reach for my bag as if to suggest that I reaching for pepper spray or something hadn't bought some yet in reality, because I had just moved to town a few days before. He notices the gestures, makes eye contact, stops, and then literally turns his head away to feign looking at the numbers on the street, like he was lost or looking for a specific spot, as if he hasn't been slowing up and speeding down with me for the past ten minutes, not looking anywhere. 
but at my backside. Acting 010 for capturing the innocence of someone definitely not creepily following a woman half his age back from the gym for 20 plus minutes. He continues to pretend to look around, glance back at me, look around some more, glance back at me, and when he looks away for the third time, I decide now is the time to truly make a break for it. I begin booking it down the opposite street, while occasionally peering back to see if he kept following. I take a bunch of well-lit, busy streets, employing random, unnecessary turns, as I have when I have been followed before. Eventually, once I check out the whole street and feel confident I have lost him, I finally calculate my way back home. The next day, I ask a friend from work who is local to take me to get some pepper spray. I bought a mini version, the smallest size that can easily fit a purse. The pepper spray's brand's name for a bottle of this size is literally called Madame, which is emblazoned across the side of the bottle in bright pink lettering. third shift in a children's residential facility, which is a 100-year-old orphanage. Now it's for abused kids with behavioral, emotional problems. A lot of them have nightmares regularly, and so in the dead of night. I'll be startled out of my rounds because someone will scream or something. Some of the kids talk in their sleep and sleepwalk, and it's creepy as if. There's the kid who will wake up and open his door and just stare at you for about a minute before quietly closing his door and going back to sleep. One time he opened his door and zombied his way over to my co-worker and I dead-eyed and slack-jawed and we were like, dude, what? And he finally goes, I want biscuits shit. And we were like, get the F out and go to bed. Not that great of a story. Walking around the grounds at night with my head full of other staff stories about parents showing up to try and steal their kids back. Never happened to me, but did happen to another staff before, and I'm a paranoid person. We have a ton of ghost stories about this place, though, because the facility was built in the 1800s to handle the influx of orphans produced by a cholera epidemic in the area. The building is old as hell and full of hidden tunnels and passageways that staff can use to get around fast. But like hell, I go in. Any of them. Staff who have been here longer have ghost stories about seeing shadows, hearing things, etc. I have none. But one time I was taking a kid to the basement to do laundry, and he stops and goes. Mrs. X, there was a man standing in that room, but he's gone now. And I was like, well, it was probably a ghost, little dude. Let's get this laundry done. Honestly, though the creepiest shit around here usually happens during the day with the little dudes are awake. Love them, though. Did some sailing in the past with my family in the Caribbean, and one night we anchored by Norman Island the island that is allegedly Treasure Island from the Robert Louis Stevenson tale. The typical anchoring area in deeper water was pretty full by that point, so we ended up going to a less sheltered area closer to the beach. But it wasn't a big deal, as it was fairly calm. Anyway, as night fell, the water became luminescent. 
There were these jellyfish that would light themselves from inside in what looked like a glowing green clover. Thousands of them. I'd never seen or heard of anything like it, and it was only happening near the shore where we were. It made us happy the deeper anchorage was full, as we never would have seen it. They died down after about a half hour when it was getting truly dark out, but before bed I dipped my foot in the water and the jellyfish nearest me started all lighting up again. One giant nope and my foot was out of the water before they got any ideas. Come to think of it, that was also the night of the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, so we spent it listening to the BBC report over the shortwave radio in the dark, watching these luminescent jellyfish all around us. What a surreal evening. I worked offshore for five years as an ROV pilot the robots that go underwater. I have seen some odd things, worked on a job where the field we were working on is barrels at bottom of ocean. We were told we couldn't go near these with the robot. Apparently these were dumped by the U.S. government during Cold War era. Who knows what was in those barrels? I've seen all kinds of rare creatures, including exclusive six gill sharks. One of the cooler things I saw was an eel eating another eel the exact same size. Imagine a snake underwater eating another snake exact same size. That was pretty cool because it looked like the eel detached its jaw like a snake and everything. Also has seen giant bluefin tuna. Tuna in general can be anywhere from surface to a couple thousand feet down. The ability to dive like that still amazes me. I worked in the oil spill in the Gulf. To see oil just pour out like that is something we've all seen, but to be there and realize that's just below you, a mile below, is something else. For me, it was crazy to see that many robots underwater at the same time as you have usually max four or two vessels, but rarely. It was chaotic as heck. The vessels out there were so close we could almost just have conversations with people by shouting, which is very rare. One of the crazy things I won't forget is two vessels were flaring off, literally just burning off oil, and I could feel the heat from their vessel on the one I was. I have old stories I could talk about that really, but to be part of something that was that huge, even though it wasn't a good thing in our history, I can still say I was part of it and be proud to stop the spill. In January 1965, a group of musicians, including Jimi Hendrix, driving back to Manhattan, were stranded in a blizzard and had gotten stuck in a heavy drift that reached the hood of their vehicle. It was bitter cold. Unexpectedly, the road ahead of them suddenly lit up as a bright phosphorescent object, cone-shaped like a capsule, landed in the snow about 100 feet up ahead. It stood on a tripod landing gear. Before any of the stunned occupants of the vehicle could move, a door opened on the side of the craft and an entity stepped out. He stood eight feet tall, his skin was yellowish, and instead of eyes, the creature had slits. His forehead came to a point and his head ran straight to his chest, leaving the impression that he had no neck. The being proceeded to float to the ground and glided towards the trapped occupants of the van. 
The snow melted in the wake of the creature. His body seemed to generate tremendous heat, so much so that as it came across a small rise, the snow disappeared around in all directions. In a matter of what seemed like seconds, the being came over to the right-hand side of the van, where Hendricks sat and looked right through the window. According to other witnesses at the scene, the creature seemed to be communicating telepathically with Hendricks. Immediately, the interior of their vehicle began to heat up. The heat coming from the being evaporated the snow, enough to free their imprisoned van. The being glided behind the van and the snowdrift by now had completely vanished. Turning the ignition, the driver gunned the engine and drove away at high speed. As they looked back, they could see the road filling in with snow again. The object was at the same instant lifting off like a rocket from a launching pad. When a freak storm lashed the Gulf of Lyon and the inland villages were battered by winds of ferocious force, I was awakened by an insistent tapping on the window of my downstairs bedroom. At first I dismissed it as the wind wrapping a twig onto the glass, but finally I got up and went to the door with a lantern. A strange sight met my eyes. In the doorway stood a boy, aged about ten, wrapped in a piece of sacking. His hair was long and yellow, quite unlike that of the local boys, and his face almost luminously pale. He appeared to have no clothes apart from the sack, and as he stretched out his arms towards the light, I noticed that there were only three fingers on each of his long, slender hands. I stood there uncertain of what to do until my wife's voice roused me into action. She'd come from the bedroom, taken one look at the strange tableau, and told me to bring the child into the house. She roused the fire in the kitchen, placed the shivering boy before it, and covered him with a blanket. He slept the night on a mattress in front of the fire. In the morning, my wife and I found him some clothes belonging to our oldest son, but it was soon apparent that he didn't know how to put them on. At first, I took him for some dumb waif, a simpleton, but it soon became apparent that he could speak, albeit in a language we had never heard before. Even the most commonplace things appeared to astonish him. He was bewildered by a cup containing warm milk and had to be shown how to drink from it. A knife and fork were complete mysteries to him. When a farm cat strolled through the door, the boy backed away, apparently in fright. My wife and I, totally bemused by our uninvited guest, told the story to the village priest, Father Rain Mooville, a retired Lyons University professor who had entered the priesthood at the age of 50. Once Father Moville met the boy, he knew there was no obvious solution. The child was quite unlike any human he had seen before. Even the construction of his body seemed exceptional. His hips were extremely narrow, and his rib cage almost an inverted V-shape, quite the opposite of a normal chest structure. Just looking at those delicate three-fingered hands made the priest feel a strange sense of foreboding. The next day, he took the child back to his house to be cared for by his housekeeper. He soon found that the boy had a fantastic intelligence. Unable to communicate by any form of language, Father Moville began by drawing simple diagrams of everyday objects, which received no response. Then one day, he wrote down a series of numbers in the form of clustered dots. 
Immediately, the boy took the paper and pencil and began writing dots at high speed. When he passed back the paper, Father Moville found that he had worked out the cube root and square roots of all the groups of numbers. As the weeks passed, my confidence grew. I began to master simple words and to go out with Father Moville on his rounds. I began to be accepted in the village as almost ordinary instead of a curiosity. Basic physical phenomena fascinated me. I would sit for hours by moving water or watching birds in flight in the movement of clouds. It was as though I had never seen such things before. Then, after Christmas 1900, I became ill. At first, the symptoms seemed to be those of a heavy cold, and after a few weeks, I seemed to have recovered, but by February, I was sick again, this time with a high fever and a deathly pallor. The doctor was sent for and confessed himself mystified. My heart was the slowest he had ever heard, almost half the speed of a normal human. I should be taken to a hospital, but in my condition, such a journey could well have been fatal. So, the boy who came from nowhere became weaker, and on the second week of March, I died and was buried under an ash tree in the graveyard of St. Meandy. I am from Waterville, Maine. Back in the late summer, early fall of 1971, I was newly married and living in Killeen, Texas with my husband, who was in the Army. We had a small duplex apartment in Killeen. One night he had duty and I was home alone in bed around 3 a.m. in the morning. I woke up suddenly and saw a black figure standing at the bottom of my bed. It was eight or nine feet tall and had huge big black wings and red eyes. I closed my eyes and opened them again and it had moved closer to me on the right side of my bed. I couldn't scream. It was as if I was frozen in fear. I covered my head in the blankets. I was so afraid, about five minutes. Later I looked and it was gone. It gave me a horrible feeling and I prayed never to see it again. Shortly after this event I came back to Maine as I was way too frightened to ever stay alone at night when he had duty. I told my mom I had seen a huge black angel that night and she was glad I came home as that didn't sound good. I had never heard of the Mothman, but a few years later I came across an article and a drawing of one. Even before I read the article, I said, Wow, that is exactly what I saw in Texas. It didn't have a noticeable neck and its face was like hooded, its wings tucked in on its side, but you could tell they were very large. It was totally black except for the eyes were round, large, and red. I still think of this thing with fear. Personally, do you have any idea what it is? I'm 57 now, and I am still searching for an answer. PSE, the apartment I lived in, had a well in the entranceway that always gave me the creeps. The cistern, I believe it is called. Just a flat rock covered it, and it still had water in it. I couldn't see the water, but I heard the plop when I dropped a rock in it. This probably has nothing to do with any of this, but felt I should tell you anyways.